Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. You've chosen to reveal yourself to us. We pray, Lord, that we would hear from you today, from your word, that, we might, that it might uh, nourish us as your word only can do, and that we might respond to you with a posture that you've called us to have, to you and to your word. If you would, take a moment just to ask the Lord to speak to you from his word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see what you want to say to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. In these last few weeks, we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah. As you heard in the reading, we come to a, a portion in the book of Nehemiah where the people of God respond to God. And if you've been walking with us, you know that what has been happening in the book of Nehemiah is that the people of God have been restored in the city of God, Jerusalem, that needed to be restored, the walls are being rebuilt, the gates being put back together, all for the mission of God. And we've seen this almost every single week, the people of God and the city of God for the mission of God. And if you remember, the city was in shambles. And then, as we looked at last week, 52 days, they rebuilt the wall for protection. They rebuilt the gates for the flourishing of the community. And last week, we saw that they celebrated They celebrated God's goodness to them. And for the first time in several generations, they celebrated the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, declaring where their dependency was found. And we saw they read the scriptures and they longed to hear how they could be the people of God because the word of God shows them how to be the people of God. And as they were being reestablished, they wanted to know what the word said. And today, as we heard in the reading, they heard the word again. I don't know if you caught it as Sarah read it. But they heard the word of God for a quarter of the day. They sat and they listened to the word of God for four to six hours, listening. They could not get enough. Think of the psalmist who says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or I think of the words of Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he says, for you will be satisfied. They heard the word and they listened for four to six hours. They could not get enough. And what did it cause them to do? In the reading, we heard for another quarter of the day, for another four to six hours, they confessed their sins. They repented. They worshiped. What is this? This is revival. The people of God who have not done this for generations are now back in the city of God. They're established as the people of God and they hear the word of God for six hours. Then they worship and confess and repent before God for six hours. And what we have for the rest of chapter nine is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. We're gonna hear the people of God as they respond to God in prayer. And it's a specific kind of prayer. And I think it's important for us to notice this. The specific kind of prayer that they pray for the rest of chapter nine that we're gonna look at is a prayer of repentance. And true repentance is is a recognition of who we are before God, a true recognition of who we are. But it is equally as important, if not more important, a recognition of the right view of God. 
That repentance allows us to have a, a true view of ourself, that we're self-aware, but that we come before God knowing who God is. This was revival that broke out. Now, many of us would probably say today, I, I'd love to have revival. I'd love to have revival in my own heart. And I want that, what I've maybe even experienced at different times, that relationship with the Lord, that revival of spirit. And yet what's really interesting here and also through the history of revivals in the world, revival is always paired with repentance. These two things go hand in hand. You cannot have revival without true repentance. Now, who knows what Tuesday is? Anyone? Halloween, right? Yeah, it's just the day that, no big deal, we send our kids door to door to take candy from strangers who are wearing masks. It's fine, no big deal, it's good. Um, But also Tuesday is something else. It is uh, what we call Reformation Day, right? In 1517, on October 31st, uh, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. And what he was doing is he was, he was protesting the fact that the church had, had leaned towards this place to say that we can save ourselves, that we can do certain things to earn salvation. And what the, what was, well, again, what they were protesting was that they had missed the grace of God. That what is true of salvation is that it is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And if that is the case, then this presupposes a posture. It presupposes a posture for the people of God. It's a posture of humility, of neediness, and of weakness. In other words, repentance. We don't come here because we need better effort. We don't come here to receive a pep talk. We don't come here to get a guilt trip. We come here to receive again and afresh God's grace. The first sentence of Martin Luther's thesis that he posted to the wall. He says, when our Lord Jesus said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. Now, this is a different way that we tend to think about repentance. We sometimes think of repentance as a one-time thing. We did it that one time, we repented, and now we're good. Or we think of, oh, we need to repent of sort of the biggies, the big sins, the, the egregious ones. We need to repent. But what does he say? He says, all of life is repentance. This is the posture before a God who is full of grace and mercy and loving kindness. We never grow out of repentance. It's not as if we've been following Jesus for 60 years and we repent less. It's the opposite. That we know Christ so deeply that we actually repent more because we have this humility and this neediness before God, knowing who he is. And so here they are. They've taken, they've read the law. They've celebrated the feast for the first time since Joshua. For the first time in a generation, they're taking their faith seriously. And what does it lead them to? Not a sort of holy posture of like nose raised, like look at us, look what we've done. Not a resting on our laurels, look at the 52 days. Not even a sense of like, oh, you know what? We have a better reputation now. It's a posture of repentance. A life of true faith is ongoing repentance. Now today, we're gonna walk through this long prayer and it's a longer passage than we would typically walk through on a Sunday morning. It's not gonna take us a quarter of the day. Um, but I want us to walk through it. And as we do, what we are going to see is these two truths that are just across all of it. Repentance, a life of repentance requires a humble posture. 
Or another way to say it is repentance is a humble posture. And two, repentance understands God's posture towards us. Both are essential in our walking of faith. And we're going to see this all the way through this chapter. Now, in what Sarah read, it, it starts with a clear view of themselves as dependent upon God for mercy. They went from feasting and now they're fasting. So now they have moved into a time of fasting. And, and fasting is this, this um, opportunity, this discipline to remember that we are desperate for, need, for God's kindness. We feast to celebrate his kindness, but we fast to recognize we need his kindness and his mercy and his generosity. And what do they do? They wear sackcloth uh, and they cover their heads with dirt. Why? Because it's meant to give us and show us a true view of sin. Sackcloth was a rough fabric left deliberately coarse so they could carry heavy things. This would be kind of like taking a burlap sack, making it inside out and putting that over your body. This is very uncomfortable to wear sackcloth. It's supposed to be discomforting when we think of sin. There's a tendency sometimes to think, oh, God is a God who kind of, you know, he's sort of, you know, keeps us away from the, the fun stuff. He's the outlaw of the fun stuff. But this putting on this sackcloth is a reminder that we are meant to be discomforted by sin. Because sin, pride, corruption, greed, envy, lust, hatred, these are not meant to comfort us. They lead to death and they lead to destruction. And so they would clothe themselves in discomfort. And then they'd anoint themselves with dirt with an acknowledgement that they're a mess, an acknowledgement that they're filthy. Sin makes me feel miserable. This is the posture of repentance. Often this is, you know, different than the posture we take when we come to church. We tend to clean ourselves up and, and look really good and have a tendency to think, oh, well, I can only come to church if I have my stuff together. I've had people tell me, I, I can't come to church because I'll just cry all day, the whole time. Like, this is what better place to come. So with the body of Christ to come and to weep and to cry. The reality is all of us, no matter how good we look today, this is our true posture when it comes to sin. We are sinners in desperate need of grace and mercy. So they put sackcloth on. They put dirt on their heads to remind them that all of life is repentance. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not just for the big things. It is a posture of our faith before the Lord. It's a posture of humility and repentance. And they repent for themselves, as we saw in the reading, but they also repent for their forefathers. They, They repent for the sin that has happened before them. Why? Because they recognize they're not just individual sinners, They're not just one generation of sin, but they're part of a humanity that has sinned and has corrupted everything. And they're less concerned about reputation. They're not trying to cover up sin. They're honestly recognizing that sin has permeated everything. If you remember Jesus, he was so frustrated with the Pharisees because this is what, this is the opposite of what they did. They wanted to look right. They wanted to say long, eloquent prayers. If they fasted, they wanted to make sure everyone knew. They wanted to have their reputation be that which would make them right before God. And Jesus over and over again is frustrated with them because they're missing the heart of humility and of repentance before the Lord. It's a posture of repentance is not concerned with reputation. Because he knows there's no hope there. When it comes to sin, we don't hide it, we don't cover it, we don't defend it, we don't deflect. 
But also, we don't self-condemn and we don't punish ourselves because repentance does have a clear view of ourselves, but it also has a clear view of God. We would not repent unless we know who God is, who we are bringing our life to. And so repentance is actually not self-focused. It is self-aware, but it's not self-focused. It is intensely God-focused. It requires a clear view of God's posture towards us. Now, let's walk through this prayer. Starting in verse six. They say, you are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Where do they start? With the power and the presence of God. This is a good perspective to have when we go before a holy and righteous God that he owns everything, that he's in control of of all of it. We come with a posture of humility that recognizes he gives us breath to breathe every moment. And he's the one who sets up the ethics by which we live. He is in complete control, his power and his presence. Verse seven. You are the Lord, they say, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name of Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Who do we come to when we repent before the Lord? We come to a God who owns everything, but we also come to a, to a God who calls He calls Abram out and he calls him Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. He is faithful to his promises. He's a calling God. And if you're a Christian, he called your name. He called you out. He wooed you through the power of the Holy Spirit and he has called you his child. He called you as we sang out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he called you because he loved you. Notice he says, for you alone are righteous. When he calls us into repentance, he's calling us back to this God who is righteous and out of his righteousness has made a way for us to be called righteous through the death of his son. He is faithful, he is loving, and he's covenant keeping. Keep going, this prayer. He says, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. Who is this God? About to Exodus, he is the God who, it says three times, hears, sees, and knows your affliction. Some of us need to hear that he hears, he sees, and he knows you. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. and By a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Who is this God? He's a redeeming God. 
He brings people out of slavery. He breaks chains. God went to great lengths to do this. He gives them a new way of life as free people. He provided for their flourishing. Redeeming is this idea of purchasing. He purchases the people back and frees them out of slavery. But notice also, he, he gave them his presence. Fire by night and the cloud by day to guide them. He provided for them food every single day as they wandered in the wilderness. And don't miss this. He came down to give them his word, to reveal himself to the people of God. This is the God we come before. What happened? They longed for their days of slavery. They said, oh, bread and quail again. They said, you know what? We ate pretty well, slaves back in Egypt. And instead of walking forward in the freedom that God had given them, they, they longed for that which they had before, verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and they stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Stiff neck is, is a farming language. A bull, if you're trying to break a bull to prepare the bull for your ranch or for your farm, you have to break him. But if you don't, he'll stiff his neck trying to, trying to not be broken. Because what does the bull want? He wants the whole land on his own terms. So he stiffs his neck and says, don't break me. It's that same idea, that picture of sin, that we want everything God gives without the Lord, without the statutes, without the, the, the realm in which he has called us to do. But look what he says. But you, here's God's posture. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them for the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. To a people who are stiff-necked, Say, I want to go back to slavery. What does God do? What's his posture? He's ready to forgive. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's loving. He's patient with rebellious spirits. What's God's posture? It's not, oh, you guys again? Really? Like, how long do I have to deal with this? No. His posture is ready to forgive with grace and mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Why would we withhold ourselves from coming to this God whose posture towards us is ready to forgive? Keep going, this prayer. 
And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Eshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land. They might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities in a rich land, and they took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate, and they were filled, and they became fat, and they delighted themselves in your great goodness. Who is this God? He's a blessing God who longs to give us good things. 16 times in this chapter, the word gave. That God gives to those who give nothing in return. He isn't depriving us. He isn't belittling us. He isn't shaming us. He gives rebels entire kingdoms. And think of what he has given us. Everything we need for life and for godliness. We can trust his provision. But when we forget that, we're prone to worship the things that he gives more than worshiping the giver himself. Look what happens, verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and they cast your law behind their back and they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. So what does God do? Verse 27. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuous and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God." Some of you are like, are we going to summarize the whole Old Testament? Yes, we are. Who is this God? He's gracious, he's calling, he's loving, but he's also disciplining. He disciplines his people. He gives them over to what they actually want. He's the God of heaven who has endless mercy, but he isn't like an absent father who's trying to bless his people, sort of to, to be the cool guy when he shows up. He's a disciplining, loving father who says, the best thing I can do for you is call you back to myself. The best thing I can do for you is discipline you to give you what you actually need. Remember that note about the word that is actually will give you life? They keep chasing after other things, but God says, I want to call you back. And he hears them again over and over and over again because he loves them. God allows them to be disciplined for what purpose? To restore them back to what is best for them, a relationship with him. And the longest prayer in the Bible ends like this with his petition. Now, therefore, our God, 
the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, and our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please and we are in great distress. How does he end the prayer? He takes a a right posture before God. They recognize that God is righteous and he always does what is right. And what they are living out in this moment is the consequences of the sin that they have had. They're under Persian rule, remember. Here they are in the land that God has given them to enjoy all the goodness of God as we saw earlier. And yet they recognize that they are under Persian rule because of their sins. And so here they are, they recognize, they have a true view of themselves. But what is he calling out for? What is he praying? He's saying, as we sang, Lord, have mercy Lord, would you once again restore us? Would you once again forgive us? Would you once again call us back to yourselves? And why can he and they come to God like this? Because that's his posture to those who will repent. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to show mercy. He's ready to restore us back to himself. Repentance is a true, humble posture before God. Why? Because we know who God is. He's abounding in loving kindness. He's slow to anger. He's rich in mercy. He's ready to forgive. As we read this chapter, it's it's the crux of the gospel. We're deeply flawed and we're deeply loved. And a recognition of both is essential in our understanding of the gospel. Like I said in the beginning, we're not here to get a pep talk. We're not here to get a guilt trip. We're here to repent before a God who says, I love you and I want to restore you back to what is good for you. We're here to celebrate the gospel of grace that we're deeply flawed and we're deeply loved. That humble posture is how every single one of us approaches every single day. And God's posture towards us does not change. He's faithful, he's merciful, and he's gracious. My hope in preaching here for the last 11 years, more than anything else, more than the funny stories about my kids, more than the points, more than the moments where we've all laughed up here, more than anything else, my hope over the last 11 years is that we've been saturated in the gospel of Jesus. This is the posture we bring. A posture of repentance. Whether egregious or subtle, 
We come in humility and in neediness before God. And this God is ready to forgive. It's his posture towards us. He's calling, he's faithful, he owns everything. He is rich in mercy, he's abounding in loving kindness. He's slow to anger. Yes, he disciplines us for the sake of our good. He does not grow weary of us coming to him over and over and over and over again, just like the people of God. The gospel of Jesus is central to what we wake up to daily a posture of repentance and a recognition of who he is. And with that, it actually brings not this sackcloth, not this dirt. It brings this confidence that we come before the Lord because of what he's done for us. And as we rest in this and as we resonate this gospel and continue to to let this resonate in our hearts, we will forgive others who are hard to forgive because we've been forgiven much. We will reconcile with those who are hard to reconcile because God has reconciled us to himself. We will take the posture of humility and, and grace towards others. We will trust in his presence, in his provision, and in his word because he's faithful to give it. We'll be less concerned about reputation looking the part, wearing a mask. We will not worship the gifts that God gives, but the actual giver. Over time, this is what the gospel does for us. It transforms us. The gospel gives us this this posture that is both humble and needy and broken with sackcloth and dirt. And yet this recognition of who we bring all of our life to is a God who is ready to forgive, who loves us. And because of that, we can walk with the confidence of the gospel. In a moment, we're going to take communion as we do every week. And this is an opportunity to to come forward with this posture, with a recognition of our desperate need for God's grace. And yet, when we come to the table, what do we receive we receive his goodness and his mercy and his grace. We're gonna, the band's gonna sing over us. Come to the feast, come to the table, come and hunger no more. How can we know that we can bring our authentic self to, to him? Because of what Christ did for us. Because of the broken body and the blood shed on our behalf. We come forward to the feast knowing that it's only with him that we can come and hunger no more. And we long for the feast when we will one day be with him forever. No more sin, no more pain, no more unreconciled issues. We will be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, may we never get over your grace. We can talk about it for 30 minutes and still not really grasp it. Our desperate need for you. And so, Lord, we, we take this moment of communion and want to use this as an opportunity to repent. Like the people of God then, to recognize our own desperate need for you, our own sin, the ways in which we've made the gifts better than the giver, the ways in which we have been concerned about reputation or or looking the part, 
Where ways we haven't trusted in your presence or your provision or your word. We bring that to you now, Lord. And we bring that to you knowing who we bring it to. The God who is abounding in loving kindness, slow to anger, rich in mercy. A God who calls, a God who is ready to forgive. And Lord, the reason we know that is because of the gift of your son. That Jesus was willing to come because of his great love for us to die in our place so that we might be called the righteousness of God so that we might have a relationship with you so that we can come to your throne of grace with confidence and humility because of what Jesus has done for us. It's in his name we pray, amen.